space that the Holy Spirit would speak. Whatever words the Spirit is saying are as, if not more important than anything I might share. So may we listen to the Holy Spirit. All Scripture is God-breathed. To breathe in the Word of God is to breathe in the breath of God through the Holy Spirit. And so we stay in that space this morning. My name is Mark, and um, it's a privilege to be up here for a second week in a row. Good to see many of you. Gosh, it's almost like we've got reserved seating in here. We do have to figure out how to do something about this. But thank you for being here today. It's a privilege to be with you. Um, if you're coming back from vacation, some of you, we hope you had a great time. If you're just getting ready to go out, we hope you're not too distracted um, and that you enjoy that. If you're, if you're back, um, I won't say that we're on a vacation of sorts, but um, during the summer, we are in a series that is a journey into understanding the one another's. And so... It's sort of like a journey, where, like a vacation, we're guided by God's Word as the roadmap, and the Holy Spirit is our tour guide, and what's that country song? Jesus is at the wheel, right? So however that goes. And so we want to understand what in our journey um, it looks like to understand the admonitions and the encouragements of the one another's. Um, we talked about this last week and the week before when Don was preaching that faith, when we come to faith, it's both a decisive act, it's crossing the line of faith. And it's a sustained attitude. It's a journey. We, we meet Jesus. He isolates us. We come to the end of ourself. We come to saving faith in Him and learn what it means to walk with Him. That's what our mission statement refers to as discipleship. And as He's isolated us, we meet Him. He then in turn introduces us, or I should say reintroduces us to each other. We are the family of God. We are lovingly stuck with one another in the body of Christ. Not just so that we can learn how to get along and be a nice place to hang out, but so that the world would look and see that if this group of people from all walks of life can not only get along but be transformed and serve, there must be something to this God they serve and worship and that the world would see that Jesus is glorified. And so that's why we studied the one another's last week. We looked at what it means to pray for one another. We looked at a verse out of James, James 5, 16, and 17, we said that it was about prayer, it was about people, and it was about grace. And we anchored this. I'm so glad Jeff referenced that we are seeking to climb up on the footholds of what it means to be a praying congregation. And last week we talked about the fact that, that prayer, right, is, I'm not called to have a prayer life, we're called to lead a praying life. That prayer is more than just an activity. That prayer is communion. It is relationship with the one true and living God. He wants to have a, a conversation with us. He wants to be in communion with Him. And as such, prayer is always, always the right thing to do. Remember this, right? The little prayer thing. Need prayer? Is it a question? Need prayer? Is it a statement? Answer is yes. It is always both. Prayer is always the right thing to do. And that when we pray... It is always in response to the Holy Spirit. We always join the praying. Jesus, what is Jesus doing right now? He is beckoning us and drawing us into his presence. We don't start the praying. We always join the praying with him. And in that, he calls us to start and get better, to grow in our prayers, to pray bigger prayers. And we looked at that second verse. The prayer of a righteous man or woman is powerful and effective. We learned what it means to prayer, pray in righteousness. What that means is to pray not of righteousness and of anything that we bring to the equation, but to pray out of the righteousness that we are given in Christ Jesus and that alone. We bring nothing to the equation. 
we pray based on our standing in His righteousness and what is done for us, and that as, if not more important than the things that we bring and pray about, is to listen for what is on His heart. That's what it means to pray a righteous prayer, to pray from that standing in grace, and then to be about His kingdom, His sovereignty, His righteousness. And we learn what it means to pray for and over one another, what it means to join Christ as the intercessor and to intercede with Him on behalf of the needs of others. And then finally, we looked at what it means to, to, to confess one with another, to have corporate confession, that old country song, the ground is always level at the foot of the cross. And what does it mean to expand our understanding of what it means to corporately confess and in the more trusted, tested, true, and mature relationships that we have, to scale into increased vulnerability, support, and accountability where we really need each other in our journey of faith. So sometimes in these one another's, it's going to be like last week where we zero in on a particular verse and then pull from other sources of Scripture. In others, we kind of have to look at the Scripture in context, and that's what we'll do this morning when we look at what it means to bear with one another and forgive one another. Now, there's two ways of looking at what this means to bear with. Sometimes it means to bear one another's burdens. That's one translation. This morning, we'll be looking at what it means to bear with one another in relationship and forgive one another. And we'll look at this out of Colossians 3. And unlike just an isolated verse, the only way we can really engage this and get the context is to look at the whole chapter. So I put it, not the whole chapter, but the majority of it. It's on the back of your bulletin. And let me just, it's not going to be up on the screen. I'll just recite this portion, and then we'll zero in on our, on our anchor verse. Colossians, the first two chapters, um, Paul has built a case for the supremacy of Christ. What Christ has done on the cross. That He is the supreme and sovereign one. He holds first place. And now he turns the corner in chapter 3 and, and talks about the implications for how we live. And he writes this. Since then, you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God the Father. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. For you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is your life, appears, you will also appear with Him in glory. Therefore, put to death Therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry, because of these, the wrath of God is coming. You used to walk in these ways in the life you once lived, but now you must rid yourselves of all such things as these, anger and rage and malice and slander and filthy language from your lips, and, and do not lie to one another since you have taken off You've taken off the old self with its practices and put on a new self which is being renewed in the knowledge and the image of its creator. Here, there's no Gentile or Jew, no circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and is in all. And then our centerpiece verse. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourself with compassion, kindness, and humility, gentleness, and patience. Forgive, bear with one another, and forgive whatever grievances you have with one another. 
Forgive just as in Christ God forgave you. And over all these virtues, put on love, which binds them together in perfect unity. The word of the Lord. Lord, we just ask that you would open our hearts to this scripture, your word this morning. We understand your desire to form our character by the power and presence of your Holy Spirit and that we would be unified under your love. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So like I said, we have to look at this in chunks because the first part of the passage, the since then, um, is built on the fact that we find our identity in the person and character of Christ. And we then find our activity driven by the power of Christ and ultimately our unity in the love of Christ. That's how we'll chunk this out this morning. So part one, see what it says, the since then... Since then you have been raised with Christ, set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. And it gives these two lists to sort of blend attitudes and behaviors together. And then he goes on to say, put to death whatever, therefore, belongs to your earthly nature. Very specific, harsh words. Put to death. It means to mindfully and continuously put to death the old self if I'm to invite and experience the grace of the God who has created me. Put to death. It doesn't mean to wound it, to distract it, to deny it, or to avoid it. It means to crush it. To use a law enforcement term with extreme prejudice. Shoot to kill. John Owen said, sin is a murderer. Treat it accordingly. Be killing sin or it will be killing you. Right? We're in a battle and the battleground is the human heart. And so we have to take this kind of attitude by the power and presence of Christ. It's the way life works. So to go from the old to the new, to quote Greg Spencer, who wrote a great book called Awakening the Quieter Virtues, to go from the old to the new, we have some good dying to do. And this is kind of the way life works. If I want to get healthy, right, if I want to die, I have to die to eat certain foods. If I want to get things done, I have to die to laziness. If I, if I want to um, you know, help others flourish, I have to die to the need to sort of draw attention to myself. We all know this is how life works, and that's what Paul is saying here. Right? We have to die to the old. When C.S. Lewis um, became a believer, he wrote this. He said, when I looked into my soul, I, saw, I found a zoo of lusts, a bedlam of ambition, a nursery of fears, and a harem of fondled hatreds. So since we've been raised with Christ and the power of Christ, we have to continuously put to death the old self. And if we think this is not a struggle for us, then chances are it's a struggle we're already losing. It's a daily battle, but notice what Paul says. He says this is being renewed in the knowledge and image of the Creator, which means that God in Christ does not ask us to do anything without giving us the power to do it. That leads to our second point. That if our pursuit is the character of Christ, that our activity, our journey, is done in the power of Christ and in the presence of Christ. That's what discipleship is all about as we're becoming image bearers of Christ. To take off the old and put on the new, knowing that we are no longer sinners struggling to become children of God, but rather children of God declared righteous in Christ who are now struggling to become transformed in the people He has designed us to be by His power. So our activity then is guided and directed by the power of Christ. 
And that leads to the second part, verse 12. Therefore, remember, the therefore is got to go back to the since then to get to the therefore. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved. Just rest with that. God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved. That's our status. Holy and dearly loved. I've, I've been in um, you know, social work and mental health. I've worked for 40 years. And so I've interviewed lots of kids and families, right? And every once in a while when, I was, when I'm feeling feisty, if I'm in the neighborhood or sometimes at church, if I have a sibling group, right, that's together, right, without their parents, I'll just kind of pose some questions. I might ask, who's in charge in your family, mom or dad? Get some interesting questions, interesting responses, right? And sometimes I'll ask, you know, who's the favorite in your family? Get some interesting responses. Now, if you were to ask that in our family, right, our kids would probably say, well, you know, Kelly's the brains, Lucas, if you've seen him, he's the brawn, you know, Johnny's the extrovert, and CJ is probably most improved. Let's just leave it at that, all right? One time I was out here in the courtyard, the family no longer goes here, and I had three or you know, four siblings, and I said, who's the favorite in your family? And that wasn't an argument, but, but they all thought they were. Each one thought they were the favorite. And I thought, you know what? That's good parenting. You're God's favorite. I mean, I had this in the message last week when we were talking about prayer. Do you ever feel like there's some sort of hierarchy in prayer, like it's some sort of gift, that God listens to certain people's prayers more than your own? like there's a certain way you're supposed to pray before God will hear you, like you're in a group and there's some really big prayer request and, Ken, you're really good at praying. Would you handle this one? God's more likely to hear you than me. You ever feel that way? Not the case. God knows our hearts. You're God's favorite. You're chosen, holy, and dearly loved. And with that, then, we get to live a life out of that gratitude from that space. And so with that, because we are holy and dearly loved, he asks us to check out our spiritual wardrobe. What's in our closet? And he says this, having taken off the old, now clothe yourself with these things, compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Wear these things. Let them be your garment. Compassion. The actual Greek word speaks, it's called like the bowels of compassion, like guts. Gutsy, persistent love. A definition of compassion that goes the extra mile. It's the same word that's used in the story of the prodigal son when the father sees his son coming back, right, from his wayward ways. And it says the father was full of compassion. A deep drivenness, a gutsy love. Kindness, a spirit-imparted goodness of heart. Spirit imparted. Humility. Now, interestingly enough, there's no real, I just learned this, there's no real word for humility in the Scripture. But what does it mean? It means to have a right-sized view of yourself before God. He guides the humble in what is right and teaches them His way. Humility is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding, says Proverbs 9.10. And then this from Jeremiah 9. Let the wise man not boast in his wisdom, nor the strong in their strength, nor the rich in their riches, but let the one who boasts boast about this, that they understand and know me. That's it. That I am the Lord who exercises kindness, justice, and righteousness in these I delight. 
regards itself, if that means in these qualities or in these people. He delights in the humble. And I love the verse that Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 4, 7. What do you have? Think about it. What do you have that you did not receive? So we cultivate humility and then gentleness. Gentleness. Prompted by love, it overflows from a tender heart. It is a gentle spirit that exercises self-control because at the center, it's God-controlled. And then last but not least, and God help Mark Miller on this one, it's patience, forbearance, suffering, enduring or waiting, an act of will, not just simply out of necessity. Compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. I wonder, do you have your compassion on? Like me, sort of preoccupied with your to-do list, sort of self-absorbed. Check out your wardrobe before the Lord. Now, I look in the mirror and I think, man, do I have a long way to go. But remember, God does not give us anything to do without giving us the power to do it. That this is not something where you run out and buy self-help books about kindness, gentleness, humility, and patience. If you listen to that list, and we don't have time to compare it, it's exactly what's sort of aligned with Galatians 5 when it talks about the fruit of the Spirit. Don't try this alone. You'll fail. It means to yield and ask the Spirit of God to cultivate these these attributes in our life as we seek to put them on and to wear these clothes. So our identity is in the person of Christ, and our activity is driven by the power of Christ. And we check our wardrobe and put these qualities on one to another. And so then we come to this verse where it says, Bear with one another and forgive whatever grievances you have with one another. Bear with and forgive. Now I was thinking about this, and I don't know, maybe you can't resonate with this, but I, I, I kind of take some comfort. It's like an aha moment. I take some comfort in the fact that this is in Scripture. I don't know about you, but have you ever felt like somehow in church, there's this sort of tacit understanding that we don't have any conflict? You ever feel that way? Like anything that rubs you the wrong way, oh my gosh, something must be wrong, right? can't have conflict in the church. We can't have disagreement. Paul doesn't say that. He doesn't say if. He says when. He basically says, look, you're going to have to bear with one another because guess what? You're all unbearable. We're all unbearable. Am I right? I know I'm unbearable. Show of hands. Who's unbearable at times? Right? Who needs to be forgiven at times? But what happens is when these things surface, you think, oh my gosh, something's wrong. When Paul is saying, no, it's not if these happen, but when these happen. This is not a possibility. This is a probability. Therefore, we feel comfortable leaning into it. And so how do we do this? How do we sort of bear with one another? And a couple of things. One, God does never work through us. Excuse me. He never does his work through us until he does his work in us. So it always starts with self-examination. Lord, if I'm really struggling with this individual or what's happening right now, Lord, test me, try me, examine my heart and mind, it says in the Psalms. For I, your love is, is before me and I walk continually in your truth. Search my heart first. Lord, is there something in me that needs to change? Is there something that I've done? And then number two, love, remember? Chosen, holy, and dearly loved. Love initiates. What does it say in Matthew 5, the Sermon on the Mount? If you are at the altar, right, offering a gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you, what do you do? 
Leave your gift. Go and be reconciled. Then come back and offer your gift. Love, when you step into the throne room of grace and you realize something's not right, the work is to go out and make it right. And I would suggest to you that when we are reconciled one to another, that is no less an altar of grace than the altar of worship. So love initiates and has conversations, right? Meeting of the minds. So, you know, this happens a lot um, in, in our marriage, in our family. You know how you husbands and wives or relationships. You know, sometimes there's, there's two sides to every story, right? You've got to sort that out. And sometimes there's not. There's only one, right? And most of the time it's not mine. Linda's is right, right? So I've learned this. This is going to be no surprise to her. But I have learned that when I'm in that particular state, and I know I've, I've, I've done something wrong or hurtful or neglectful or whatever, that there's this little four-word phrase that I use. I've taught it to my boys and any other person considering relationship. I say it's Number one, I say, I'm sorry. I was wrong. Please forgive me. I love you. That four-word phrase, it's, it's kind of the end of it, in that order. I'm sorry, I was wrong, please forgive me, I love you. Meaning love initiates, love acknowledges where it has wronged someone else, and that needs to be the first state if we're to bear with one another. I have a friend who's a golfer, and he basically looks across the table and he says, "Hun, I need a mulligan. You know what a mulligan is? Right? I need a mulligan. By the way, who is mulligan? Is he a golfer? he's a golfer that's still around, I'd like to play with him because if he makes lots of mistakes, I'm his guy. I need a mulligan. So we're able to bear with one another in our relationships. And then it says, forgive just as in Christ God forgave you. We're to be people of grace, people who forgive. And the steps here are important. One, if I feel like I've been wounded or wronged and I hold on to that, the first thing is to test my motives. As Tim Keller would say, pull up on the, on the roots of your most turbulent feelings and see what's at the root of it. Could it be a sense of entitlement, right? And search your own heart first. Second, it's to look at the other person through redemptive eyes. You know, Paul writes, by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace to me is not without effect. It's always about grace. What does it say in 2 Corinthians, Right? From now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Because if anyone is in Christ, they are a new creation. The old is new. Excuse me, the old is gone, the new has come. So we look at the other individual through redemptive eyes. And sometimes what we find is when we are in that place of grace, to bear with one another basically just means roll with it. Right? Cut the other person some slack, some grace. And sometimes not. Sometimes we're called to speak the truth in love. There are clearly issues that really have to be worked out. In a couple of weeks, we'll look at what it means to spur one another on to love and good deeds as iron sharpens iron. So one person sharpens another. So we're called to hash th these things out and in the end to extend forgiveness. Let's be honest, the most difficult place to extend forgiveness is when the person who we feel has wronged us doesn't know or won't acknowledge that they've wronged us. Would you agree? I like what C.S. Lewis said. He says, everyone thinks forgiveness is a great idea until they have something to forgive. Right? So what do we do in those instances? I really wrestle with this this week. And again, it's not if these things happen, but when. Right? 
if, it's not if, but when. Well, first of all, it says forgive as forgiven. It doesn't say forgive others so that you can be forgiven. That would be a gospel based on works. In other words, God doesn't look at you and say, hey, I can't forgive you until you go out and forgive so-and-so. That's not the way it works. It is forgive as you have been forgiven. Last week I shared the, sure the power and the, that's the right word, I can't even think of it, but just the, the tremendous emotion that I feel in serving communion, if you were here last week. Just what it's like to be in a space of looking at the elements and experiencing God's grace and forgiveness in my life and being able to hold that out for others to experience the same thing, communion. What I would suggest to you is that's a pretty good picture of what it means to forgive as forgiven. And I heard an interesting you know, piece on this. Kind of a proportional thing. Think about it this way. When, you're, when it's a situation where someone has wounded you or hurt you, right? The more I amplify my woundedness and my hurt, what this person has done, <coughs> excuse me, even to the point of bitterness, the more I amplify that, proportionately what I am doing is reducing or shrinking the degree to which I understand my own state of grace and what God has done for me. The more I'm thinking about that, Unless I'm thinking about my own status of being forgiven. But the reverse is also true. The more I rest in the grace that I've been given, what I'd be like without it, and I rest in that place, the more I begin to de-emphasize, become smaller the way that I've been wounded. Does that make sense? Now, at the end of the day, this is tough. And we have to go before the Lord with it. I take great comfort in what it says in Mark 9. It's not exactly the um, <coughs> context for the Scripture, but in Mark 9, there's a father that goes before Jesus and he says, he's pleading for his son who's uh, demon-possessed. And he says, Lord, help. And Jesus says, says something, hey, everything is possible if you will have faith. And I take great comfort in the father's comeback. He says, well, Lord, I believe... Know the rest? Help me in my unbelief. Like, Lord, I believe, help me where I don't. And at the end of the day, I think in human terms, if we are really seeking to be extending God's grace and we still feel like we fall short, Lord, I want to forgive. Help me where I can't. Help me where I can't understand this. That's what it means to extend forgiveness in the body of Christ. You know, I've been wrestling with this verse not exactly in Colossians, but in Hebrews 12, it says this. It says, see to it that no one misses the grace of God and that no bitter root, right? No bitter root grows up to cause trouble and defile many. It's an interesting phrase, isn't it? See to it that no one misses the grace of God. What does that mean? Does that mean see to it that I don't miss the grace of God in my own life? Answer, yes. See to it that I don't miss the grace of God at work in someone else's life. Answer, yes. See to it that I don't miss the grace of God as it would be sorted out and worked through in relationships. Answer, yes. Just a powerful phrase. Rest with it. So that no bitter root takes root. Now, I don't know about you. Anyone like gardening? 
You like gardening? Man, we got to talk because I just can't. You like gardening? Well, I, I hate gardening. And what I hate most about gardening is weeding. All right? Don't like weeding. All right. Now, the, the, so if you've ever weeded before, of course, the easy ones, after a rain, you pull it up, pull up by the roots, you feel really good, right? But then there's the other ones that are really kind of caked in there. But you know the weeds that I hate are the ones that after you've planted the plant, right? They just lantana in our backyard. And somehow there's a weed right at the base of the plant that grows up. You ever seen this? And sort of takes over. That's what this, that's a picture of, right? No matter what kind of fruitfulness we're seeking, if that bitter root stays there, it will overshadow everything. And so we stay. See to it that no one misses the grace of God. So our, our, our identity is in the person of Christ. Our activity is driven by the power and presence of Christ through the Holy Spirit. And last but not least, our unity is in the love of Christ. So early on, we talked about your spiritual wardrobe, compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, things that you wear. It says, over all these things, put on love, which binds them all together. So if all these attributes, compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience are the clothing we wear, in essence, love is, to quote Alistair Begg, the blanket. It's the blanket overall. Now, I don't know... um, who was here, but on, on Thursday night, we had a staycation, right? It was a movie night in here, and it was, it was so fun to kind of come in with the, the room dark and, and families, right? Kids would be huddled under the, it's not, not really blanket weather, right? Mind you, but you see the entire family huddled under a blanket watching the movie. Or maybe you went to the beach this summer, and you're huddled around a fire, right, with a blanket covering everyone, or it's a, it's a cold night, just coming into the blanket. That's a picture of the love of Christ. That is what unifies us. And it's not exclusive. Our role as, as members of this body is to always basically be say, hey, who wants to come in under the blanket? Who's out in the cold? We bring them under the blanket of Christ. And I thought about this even this morning. Um, one of the offices I work in is in the process of doing a patchwork quilt. Do anyone know? Have you ever seen a patchwork quilt? Maybe some of you actually knit them. You know what a patchwork quilt is, right? When people from the outside look in, that's what they see. They see a beautiful patchwork quilt with each name, each one of us on it. Mine, some of them a little bit more tattered and worn than others. But that's what they look at and see in the unity of the body of Christ. So, how do I wrap this up here this morning? Um, We were just up in Santa Barbara, and I was thinking about this as we were driving by, and I was looking out at the Channel Islands, right? Um, And I went to school in Santa Barbara, and I became a Christian in my high school days, but Kind of like the difference, right? You might know something intellectually. And I remember the, the moment when I really felt an experience of God's love. I, mean, I kind of knew it intellectually. But I remember where I was. I remember the clothes I was wearing. I was walking by the library, college at Westmont. I was on my way to practice. Looked out at the Channel Islands. I remember exactly where I was. I just kind of felt God's delight. Dearly loved. And I thought, I know why that's happening. The reason it had been happening is for that semester, with a bunch of guys in my suite, we've been connecting. Connecting at a deeper level, going through some difficult things together, right? Growing closer together. I thought, you know, that's why. I kind of knew it intellectually, but until I actually began to experience it in the body of Christ, I didn't know what it was like. That's what God calls us to do, one with another. Amen?
So there's an opportunity to do that this afternoon, to be, as my wife likes to call it, Jesus with skin on, right, as we head over to the Scullies. And as Jeff prayed, you know, lots of folks need Jesus with skin on. They need the body of Christ. And next week we'll talk about what it means to encourage one another and bear up and support one another as we move forward. But for now, let's just close in prayer and I'll guide us through a time and, and then we'll worship together. I don't know where the Spirit of God finds you this morning, but just ask the Spirit to speak to you to bring, bring forward anything that needs dealing with. Whether it's responding to His invitation to pray, pray more deeply and diligently, whether it's responding to the prompt for confession. We confess, we don't tell Jesus anything He doesn't already know. But until we tell them, there will always be a wedge. And maybe it is a, a prompt to open up your heart and ask for his forgiveness. Maybe he has laid other people on your hearts for whom you are to intercede. Come alongside him in praying over and for others. Maybe it's someone that you've kind of avoided that you really need to lean into and bear with or extend forgiveness and grace or ask for forgiveness. Whatever the Holy Spirit takes you this morning, ask why, what that's about, what the Spirit's asking you to do and who He's asking you to become.